Preview pod. Who'd have thought we'd been saying that this time last year or this time any of the last, what is it, eight years? Ulster beat Edinburgh, of course, then on Saturday against all the odds and the most thrilling of circumstances. So, here to discuss that semi final victory as well as the decider with me, Gareth Hanna, are rugby reporters Jonathan Bradley. Hello. And Michael Sadler. Hiya. Johnny, isn't it great? You've waited a long time for this, Johnny. For us to be playing like a, a final, yeah. Yeah, for us to just to get a, a good result since you were employed. <laughs> I think yeah, it was my five year uh, five year anniversary of starting this job there last week, and that was um, if you I suppose discount the uh, the Connors quarter final last year. That was the first knockout the uh, knockout win in this entire time. I was starting to think I was a bit of a jinx. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old hand at this little girl. <laughs> So we'll look back at the 22-19 victory at Murrayfield. The wise and the wherefores as to how it happened, but before casting her eyes to Ulster's first final in eight years against Leinster at the Aviva on Saturday. So first of all, where else to to start, Johnny, but Ian bloody Maligan. What a guy. Just sum up what, what he has done in such a short spell since joining Ulster and where he now stands in terms of uh, iconic status. Well... Yeah, I mean, you joke about iconic status, but obviously it's the match or the ending of the match is a classic, if you like, in the sense that, you know, it's the kind of thing that they'll be using in montages to shift season tickets for Mm -hmm. years and years to come. So he has, I suppose, an iconic moment, if you like. I don't Mm -hmm. want to overuse the word, but um, I mean, in terms of just how memorable a victory it is. It's their most impressive win, I would say, their most unlikely win since beating Munster and Dolmond mm-hmm. um, in 2012 and they're on the Lion Cup. So to consider that Ian Madigan's played um, 99 minutes in an Ulster jersey and he's already had a moment like that is obviously um, a lot quicker to reach that uh, platform than most would be. And it's just by the nature of this strange season. I mean, you do have to remember that ordinarily, if this game had been played when it should have been played, like Madigan wouldn't have been playing in it yeah. because he's not been contacted to Bristol. Um, so for him to come on, it's a dream start. Like and For him, I think it's a great moment personally because we shouldn't forget them. Like, they'll be few and far between now, but whenever we announce this signing, like, People were very sceptical about what he was going to bring and what was the point in bringing him in when you had guys like Mike Laurie and Bill Johnson, younger guys who could push on and rival Burns for the town jersey. So it's a big moment for him, even in just winning over whatever fans out there were still sceptical of him. Well, look, it was obviously a great moment, one that we'll all remember for a long time. And here's what the man himself had to say afterwards. I think for me you know, you just want to kind of stick to your, your process and, um, you know, Dan Soper as, as kicking coach is great for manufacturing, putting us under pressure in training, you know, pitting us against, you know, against each other and trying to uh, manufacture match situations. Um, and then for, for us as kickers, you know, being able to replicate the technique we're using in training in games, you know, that's ultimately what you want to be doing. Um, I suppose when, 
um, obviously a big part of the goal kicking is like, you know, your thought process and, and trying to clear your mind of, of negative thoughts and trying to narrow it down to focus yourself on, on what's important. Like, so for me, you know, that that's, you know, keeping my toe pointed down, sweeping through the ball and long follow through. So, you know, I'm just saying that over and over in my head. And um, I suppose when Dan brings on the tee, he's a bit like a caddy in golf, you know, like there's a, a bit of interaction there. Um, give you a drop of water and then it's, it's about picking your line. Um, you know, obviously I, I hit a bit of a draw with the tee. So it goes out to my right and then usually works its way back in. And I suppose taking into account what wind is there. Um, and then it's about picking, picking, picking our line together and then setting the ball up happy with the alignment and then, you know, teeing up to, to kick it, I suppose. Michael, it wasn't, it wasn't even just the, the winning kick, but the conversion just a few minutes before as well, to put those together back to back in those circumstances under that pressure. And as Johnny said, just joined his new club and a lot of people were probably quite sceptical as to uh, what he was going to be able to do. To pull that off under that pressure was, was very impressive, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. There's. Oh yeah. He he did exactly what he was brought here to do, which was to function in a way that we haven't actually seen him that again function. At, you know, uh, the previous two clubs at Sojourn in France and Bristol, but nobody really knew if he was going to be able to actually do it, particularly under these circumstances. And of course, Elster missed their earlier conversion, and he came on, and he, he kind of had to nail it. He did it, and then the high pressure kick as well. Like it's a fantastic thing for him because it will give him a surge in confidence <coughs> in his own game, if there were ever any doubts in his mind as to what you know he was doing here and what he hoped he might achieve. That level of giving him uh, the exact, the, the very thing that he would have wanted to do to make an instant impression. Uh, because his previous game he wasn't he wasn't really that great, um, and you know we'll always have that moment, won't we? Mm-hmm. Whatever he does now, he got the kick. Um, he also came on, and you know he, he, he I think he, you know he played reasonably well. His, his his brief seemed to be to ship it out wide as quickly as possible, and he threw quite a number of passes, and he was very intent on getting Ulster moving. So they looked as if they were making uh, quite a lot of headway down both flanks. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rob Little. I think still probably in shock at how the gap opened for his try, but that's what they were trying to do uh, when he came on. And um, yeah, it, 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 it is, it, it's been fantastic for the squad, fantastic for everyone who follows the team, and also a, a marvellous moment for a player who, you know, came here with not a great deal of quality work uh, in, in, the immediate, in his immediate wake. Mm-hmm. It just means that, and like, we keep talking about this status that it gives him, but it does mean that whenever he meets an Ulster fan for the rest of his life, potentially, they will like be buzzing and talk about that moment and how great it was and where they were watching from. And like, it's it is something it's something special that a lot of players who could play dear no so many games for Ulster wouldn't wouldn't get anywhere near that sort of that sort of reaction maybe in years to come, but. Um, you have to give a little thought as well to John Cooney, who will have been sitting on the bench, Johnny, thinking, bloody hell, that should have been me. Well, it always has been, obviously, and he's done it so many so many times. Like It's an oddity, I suppose, to see somebody else step up and win a game 
in that fashion for Ulster later on. Or, I mean, if you think about even the tries that Cooney scored, just to step up and win a game in any fashion for Ulster is um, sort of deviation from the, the plus that we've had throughout this season and last. So, personally, I think it's a huge development in what, where Ulster are trying to go. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that they could bring Cooney off after 40 minutes. You even think to, say, Ireland and Conor Murray and how much criticism Joe Schmidt got in the last, say, 18 months of his Ireland reign for as brilliant a player as Conor Murray is, as brilliant a player as John Cooney is, for not making a change at scrum half whenever Conor Murray wasn't in his best form and the game looked like it was getting away from Ireland. So... Mm -hmm. That's the kind of depth that you need to win things. It's we always use Leinster as the example of you know they'll have players on the bench that they can bring on. They'll have players good enough to start for the vast majority of teams in the Pool 14, not even in their 23. And that's what you need. And that for me is what won the game on Friday or Saturday. Sorry, people will talk about you know John Kenny being replaced or Madigan coming on for Burns, but the nationals on the bench. And the mm-hmm. other two players, John Andrew and Mike Lowry, obviously John Andrew scored a try, Mike Lowry I thought looked really good. And all of the bench played a massive part, really the, I suppose the massive part, if you like, in winning that game. Because as much as the starters, when they weren't playing well, at least managed to keep Ulster within touching distance, the change in the tide came really when you saw the likes of Sean Reedy, who I thought was excellent, having not played for six months, Kieran Treadwell, um, you know, guys like that coming on, as well mm. as the obvious of uh, Matheson and Madigan. Yeah. Was that the the difference, Michael? Because th- Ulster, having trailed 12-0 in 19-7, in the past, that would have been at game over. Ulster have lost another knockout game, another chance. And I'm sure, like, I'll be honest and say, whenever I saw that, especially 19-7, you just sort of thought, there we go, that's it, it's gone. It was is that strength and depth that Johnny's talking about? Was that the difference as to why they could pull this back, or is there something else going on as well, mentality-wise? No, that that did make a difference. Um, also, Edinburgh's second half performance made a difference as well. Mm-hmm. They both kind of coalesced. <laughs> Edinburgh essentially didn't lose. I, 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 I don't know how they come back in this. They had the game, they lost the game. It may be more a case of Edinburgh lost mm. lost this game. I mean, you know, heresy this may be to say, <laughs> but there is that element to it. But Ulster's bench uh, very much did have an impact, which we rarely would we would very rarely see. But then again, we wouldn't have necessarily the quality on that bench that came off that night. We would have naturally expected it would have been Jack McGrath, Marty Moore had been trundling off around 50 odd minutes, whatever. Mm-hmm. But these guys come on, and whether or not the psychology of doing that ejected them with, with, with this desire to show Dan McFarland that perhaps they oughtn't have been benched. Um, mm. With also the hunger Sean Reedy brought. Kieran Treadwell had a bad game too. He did a poor game the week before. So he also was in a position where he just, they had to do it. A combination, I think, of that. Um, of course, Albie Matheson as well, who did what he's done before. I personally think Dan will probably keep him benched because what he does, he's so good and injecting uh, from the bench that pace if you need it. But never mind, we'll leave that aside. I think it's a combination. The bench was an absolutely critical factor in what Ulster did. But also you can't ignore Edinburgh's <laughs> horrific implosion 
And bear in mind as well that they should have they should have scored. There were other opportunities they missed, but the try that they really blew was the one that Billy Burns got back to intercept. Mm-hmm. If that had been pulled back, uh, that was a try, and Ulster would have gone. Wouldn't have mattered, I think, really what the bench did. But that gave them that 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 opportunity to chase it, and they certainly came on with massive enthusiasm, great physicality, and actually a hunger you wouldn't normally expect to see from a bench. And maybe that was to do with the fact that there was a mixture of normal starters uh, and others there. And you're right about Mike Lowry. Mike Lowry was really, really sharp and brought a hell of a lot to the backfield. I also really stuck stopped into the wing, which actually looked, um, dare I say it again, uh, a much more promising uh, situation for him mm-hmm. than roaming, by, roaming around the 15. Discuss. <laughs> well, we have a question on that. We will, uh, we'll discuss that a little bit later. We'll leave that in suspense for now. You mentioned that Billy Burns intercept, though. Does that not... Uh, sort of indicate something in terms of those mentality lines I'm mentioning, Johnny, that like you can see in the little Twitter clip that somebody had put up that he's sort of barking orders to, I can't remember who it was, as he's okay. running back and then gets back and makes the intercept. Like it was a it was a real leader's piece of play and something that maybe indicates what Dan always talks about, about fighting for every inch, doesn't it? I thought it was interesting because it just... To me, it reminded me exactly of the Stockdale play against Bath, where you see the guy coming back and instructing um, with Stockdale to John Cooney, but you saw Burns instructing Mike Lowry. You, you almost wonder if it actually drill and just the way that it went. But yeah, like I think you saw it in Rob Little's try. Um, there were maybe a few Edinburgh players that realised that they weren't going to catch him and just let him go. And now, obviously, it's very unlikely that they were going to catch him because Rob Little's lightning. But, <laughs> you know, if Burns had have had that attitude and just been like, well, they're away, then mm-hmm. it's 19-0. And as Michael says, they don't come back. And there were lots of other moments. Like, um, everyone was probably watching from behind the sofa after Madigan had tied things up. But the battle... Um, to secure possession after that, you know, you see Kieran Treadwell really, really fighting to get up on his feet and get the ball back. Stockdale working really well to just keep the the box kick in play and regather that. You know, there were so many little moments in that last five minutes that, for me, it really was like, you know, you hear somebody mentions it once a week. You know, that sort of fight for every inch um, mantra that they have, and it's talked about so much that I think it's easy to become skeptical about it or wary about it or you know um Ian Madigan actually had a good point the other day that you know a lot of teams talk about culture in the belief that it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you say it enough times mm-hmm. but that doesn't often work so you can you have to take these things with a pinch of salt and it's with those moments that you see that in action rather than just people I suppose talking about it but you also have to remember like this is the first time this season that they've been losing at halftime and come back to win. So it's not like it's something that um, they're doing all the time. Like it was mm-hmm. a, a rare occurrence to come back from that big a deficit. And I think that's almost what makes it um, all the more impressive because they did mm-hmm. it on that stage and that's yeah. not that stage where they falter so badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael, it was a victory as well, I suppose, for Dan McFarland, given, as you said earlier, the 
impact that the replacements had and the courage to make five by what was it like 50 51 minutes it was uh, like it, it was something that takes a bit of balls from the coach I suppose for want of a better phrase uh, yeah well I suppose it did but he, he may well have been thinking at that point that the game slipping potentially mm-hmm. anyway and they weren't really doing uh, you know a huge a huge amount though in fairness I think what they, yeah let them strike him after the 50th minute didn't it so um, mm-hmm. look, the fact was Edinburgh didn't get far enough ahead um, the 5 nil half-time deficit would have been a tremendous encouragement because after all their domination and how awful Ulster were in the first half they really weren't far behind at all um, I don't know whether he had always intended to do that I mean, with the front rows that's normally what happens anyway and literally Eric Sullivan can do 80 but um I, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't what he planned, Gareth, put it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't plan to be, that, to be behind like that. But, you know, he may have thought with, with the opportunity of a foothold in the game, it was worth making those changes now to inject uh, a bit of energy uh, in, in, into what they were doing. As it turned out, it worked like a dream. And I, they all made contribution. I mean, John Andrew also made a contribution. Every one of them who came on was visible and, and, and also contributed to getting Ulster grindingly back onto this front foot and, and finish the way they did. Mm-hmm. Johnny, you mentioned earlier the notion of a uh, scud, you being a scud. You're, you're probably off the hook given you were actually at Murrayfield, but Donal wasn't watching the game on Saturday. He uh, was hosting uh, people at his house, couldn't get to see the match, so he is now chief scud suspect. But he, he asks, uh, having not been able to see the game uh, fully live at the time, uh, and so some of the reports that he has heard from actual performance-wise, he asks, was it that good a game, or has the result been allowed to sort of take over from what Ulster's actual performance level was on the night? Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk about performance level, like all the things that we talked about last week and the week before lack of cohesion, errors, whether they be in concentration or confidence, catching fast stuff, the stuff that they've actually been really, really good on since um, they put so much extra emphasis on it with Dan Soper's arrival, still wasn't good. Um, I had a piece um, yesterday just looking at, you know, the, I suppose the amount of errors that they made and the fact that their mall, which is normally such a weapon, like fair play to them for sticking with it and having the confidence to stick mm-hmm. with it. I wouldn't necessarily have had that having seen the like Edinburgh gave away seven penalties in the game between the twenty twos, if you like, that gave Ulster an opportunity to kick to into Edinburgh's twenty two. So that's six twenty two entries off the back sorry, seven twenty two entries off the back of penalties. Mm-hmm. And it was the Seventh one was the first time that they got points off it, and that was mm-hmm. the John Andrew Mall try. Mm-hmm. Um, any other 22 entry that came via Edinburgh ill discipline was squandered, and that's a terrible return. You normally aim for about three points on average per 22 visit, is seen as a good return. Mm-hmm. So, at the stage where Ulster were coming back in and scoring, you know, that John Andrew try. Theoretically, by average, they should have been 18 points better off than they were. And that's a very different game. And that's what you're talking about, because Edinburgh are probably 
the only side really in the Pro 14 who are good that have a worse record in knockout rugby than Ulster. And that mentally has to have played, and just physically as well, has to have played into how badly they faded. But Leinster won't do that. Like you saw on um, Friday night, Leinster against Munster. Like Leinster gave Munster the opportunities to get into that game. Like the door was open, the door was ajar, if you like. But if you don't take them, then Leinster slam it shut and choke the life out of you because they're a championship winning side and they play championship rugby. Edinburgh don't do that yet. So you can't expect to squander as much as you squandered against Edinburgh and be lifting the trophy at the end of uh, Saturday night. So I completely understand what Donald's saying. You probably actually, I know I've spoken and answered the question, but you'd be better asking Michael because he's the one that has to do the ratings. So it's like, you know, how, do you, how do you rate a performance like that? Because they won, but I mean, for whatever you want to say, 65 odd minutes, like, mm. It was just as bad as it, just as bad in terms of attack and capitalising on your opportunities than anything we've seen. Like defensively, I think you can praise them a bit for just being able to stick in there. To be honest, mm-hmm. Michael, how did you rate it? With great difficulty. <laughs> Bring it up. Uh, <laughs> it was extremely difficult to do that. Um, yeah, because, because after a result like that, fans are on a high, probably thinking great things of the players and then you're having to look at this from a bit of an impartial viewpoint and look at, well, what's the, the reality of this? What what did you sort of look at as the reality of Ulster's performance? Um, well, I mean, you, you have to weigh it up with what they've done for the vast majority of the game, how many errors and mistakes have been made by a lot of them. And that was the starting point. You couldn't start about it. You couldn't, the starting point wasn't, oh, wouldn't it brilliant the amount of and they, they finished strongly. Uh, that helped, but it was a it had been a, a pretty pretty patchy and, and, and sloppy performance up to that point. And I think Johnny already kind of touched on it really. And again, this is heresy, but a better side than Edinburgh would not have let them back into the game mm-hmm. the way that um, that they did. Um, so you have to judge it on 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 that. Um, that they were amazingly fortunate to come away with, you know, as Dominic Farnham was very keen to point out and rightly, a very rare uh, semi-final win in Pro 12, Pro 14, whatever you want to say, the away semi-final win. But it was not uh, anything like the performance that you would want to see from them. And a performance in that area of that ilk mm. on Saturday, unless Leinster have an absolute mare the red cards or something like that that is simply not going to suffice mm-hmm. no matter what way you dress it up it just won't and all we'll have is Ian Madigan's kick you know well, we'll still be you know, Ian Madigan's kick we'll not you know we'll not have anything else or much substance they will not win that trophy if um, they're anywhere close to mm-hmm. that, that level mm-hmm. that's it Johnny on this sort of line you mentioned the deficiencies in the tackling sense. Ian Frizzell says that the, the starting backs only had a 67% tackle success and that will obviously have to be improved as well for uh, this weekend's game but how much have Ulster missed Luke Marshall in that area? In terms of uh, defensively yeah because um, yeah. again like I thought you had a really good game 
sorry, I thought he had a much better game against Leinster, and then I thought he was really, really good here against um, against Edinburgh. And <laughs> he certainly wasn't missing that missing that tackle on Bill Matter in the open field, which was an amazing tackle. But um, certainly, like Luke Marshall, over the past what's that, 18 months since he came back from that ACL injury, has become a really, really important player for them. And an important player, obviously, just by virtue of Ben 13, in terms of his defensive organisation of the team. Um, in terms of this, I suppose, statistics of the tackles, yeah, like the backs obviously weren't great, but it was in stark contrast that to the forwards, who were very, very good in that regard. Like, I think the front row, I think it was 40 tackles without one missed between O'Sullivan, mm. Herring and um, O'Toole. Mm. Um, and by and large, I thought the defence was good. I'd say a fair number of those missed tackles were probably on Van der Merwe, who's obviously um, a real, just electric, electric player. Like seeing him seeing him up close was, um, well, him and Hamish Watson is really the sort of um, most eye-catching aspect of that first 40 minutes. But personally, I thought they looked a lot more solid when they just put Stockdale back out there defensively in the back line. So that's maybe something as well to think about in terms of this week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that, that an area where they're missing Will Addison as well, Michael? Uh, full back, you mean? Yeah, 15. Well, I was Sorry. thinking more in the centre, but yes, but you can miss Will Addison in any position along the back line, can't you? Don't will. Don't will. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're not being able to select him and bring his variety uh, into play, whichever position you put him at. And, and, and also, it has been alluded to Luke Marshall. <clears throat> That's very difficult. Thirteen, though James Hume, I think, is doing exceptionally well at the moment. But yeah, you, I mean, it, yeah, it's really, really tough not to have uh, Will Addison available to do that. So he's got to, <clears throat> he's got to make Dan Dan McFarland's got to weigh up whether he wants to keep starting Jacob at fifteen, or whether he wants to shift him out in the wing, or dare I say, whether he's actually allowed to do that. Theory, if Andy Farrell wants to see him at 15, maybe. But for a final, you'd like to think that that would have the ability to put him where he wants to put him. And I would have thought the best place for him would be on the wing, mm-hmm. without a doubt. What you do at 15 is another matter. But Michael Lowry, as I say, look good off the bench. Um, but I don't know. I mm-hmm. don't know. It's hard to call. Very hard to call. Johnny, Stephen McCormick just asked just a little more on Luke Marshall. No way we're not getting any more broad info on his fitness to play. Uh, it's a hip injury that he has. To be honest, I've got no idea why he's not been on the injury report with everybody else. Mm. Um, that's as much a, as much a mystery to me as it is to Stephen. Um, I suppose for the sake of background, like if this isn't... not trying to make excuses or anything, but just... The way pressers work at the minute, mm-hmm. because they're on Zoom and everybody only gets two questions, there's a lot fewer questions about injuries. Yeah. Because you're only guaranteed, you know, say of an average press conference, there's three people there. I genuinely might ask 20 questions over the course of that 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. But the way it's structured now on Zoom with so many more people involved, because they can dial in from anywhere like you're only guaranteed one or two questions so it's a lot harder to make an article out of just you know is Luke Marshall injured <laughs> yeah and yeah. when's he coming back 
I'm, yeah, I'm waiting to come back. Like, that would be your entire contribution <coughs> to this conference, so... Yeah. You have to be a little <laughs> bit more selective. Yeah, so that I think is why you're seeing an awful lot less articles on sort of shorter articles, quotes based, with coaches talking about injuries because they're just not being asked as much because basically if they don't answer the question like we saw a week before, you know, or say something like it's too early in the week, then you've wasted your question and you're not going to get anything. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, sorry, just to repeat, I have no idea why he's not been on the injury report so they've been putting out every week when he is injured and we know it's a hip injury. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Dan McFarland was one of the people up for interview yesterday, and here's what he had to say uh, to one of your two questions, Jonathan. Looking backwards, um, it, it was a massive hurdle, I think. Um, you know, just the, the, the history tells you about winning away semi-finals, how difficult that is. Uh, um, and when, when you add to that the quality of the team that we were, we were playing against, uh, the fact that they were fully, um, uh, fully loaded, and made it a big task, but uh, you know, our, our lads are, are nothing if not resilient in those kind of games. And uh, um, you know that was, you know, we got the win that we uh, that we needed. Um, and, and you know, <laughs> as we done that, and, and we faced one of the the biggest challenges around, which is playing the perennial winners of this competition um, in in uh, in Aviva. Where they're having their fourth home game in a row, so you know it's a, it's a massive, massive challenge. Michael, just finally before we move on then to looking at the Leinster game, it's easy to sort of forget that we haven't mentioned either of their names yet. But Ulster have done this with Adrian Henderson and Robert Balagoon. It makes it all the more incredible that they've actually chosen now without such key players to reach their first final in so long. Chance of it at all, really. Even at uh, 12 0 19 7, it was completely gone. But yes, to reflect on the fact that wh- however they did it, you know, they did it and they did it without these key personnel is again another important reminder of the fact that uh, a point has already been made that Dan is building a bit of squad strength here and we've got a situation where people can step up and can perform when the big names aren't there. Uh, and though it was Exactly. Well, let's get stuck into selection then uh, as to what way we think Ulster are going to go. There's a few dilemmas, as we've discussed, facing Dan McFarland. First of all, Michael, you indicated earlier that 
you yeah. would still keep Abby Matthewson on the bench. So John Cooney still starts. Surely uh, yeah. that's going to be the way of it. Or do, do you want to play devil's advocate in that one, Jonathan? Would you drop Cooney for the Pro 14 final? Do you want to be that guy? I was, I was thinking about it afterwards. And I was like, is it like a Driscoll for the third test in the Lions? Like obviously it's a different stage and a different, um, I suppose, standing of player in the sense that every Irish player has a different standing to uh, Brian and Driscoll in the last 40 or 50 years. But like, um, it, w- it would be that shocking, I think, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. It's not going to happen, is it, Michael? Um, I wouldn't say it's definitely not going to happen, but I wouldn't expect it to happen. Mm-hmm. I think that um, uh, Albie Matthewson's impact is very significant when he comes off the bench, say, maybe with 15, 20 minutes to go. I don't see why you want to change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think John Cooney can play himself back in again. He's absolutely fundamental to kick goals, because if you don't have him on the park to do that, Who's going to do it? Are you going to task Billy Burns for doing that? Or then do you have to maybe start Ian Madigan? And I think that John's ability from the tee is, is something you simply can't ignore. Mm-hmm. Some things are going, you know, just not the way that he, he would want it. But then that's the case for quite a lot of these players at the moment. And I don't think you could really victimise him and, you know, single him out as one player who's not really doing it. Um, now, I know what, you know, for, for Edinburgh's first try, he looked a bit exposed there. Uh, on the side of the mall, but there really ought to have been someone else there. I think I didn't see who it was moved just prior to that first strike when they peeled off the mall and John was left trying to stop um, and couldn't. Um, he also made a very, very important tackle at the end of the first half when the try was on. Edinburgh had various options and he, I, I can't remember who it was. He managed to get him to ground uh, and a score there would have been a 10 to 12 nil um, at half time would have been hugely significant and he pulled that one off now I wondered at the time why he didn't come out in the second half had he maybe been injured in that uh, it's never been said mm-hmm. so you can only assume that Dan made a very big call there on that because he hadn't been performing I can't see him not making the number 9 shirt for Saturday mm-hmm. I just can't yeah no no I think, I think we're in agreement on that one so Johnny the uh, Billy Burns then and the two centres likely to remain as is yeah it would be uh, a major shock if any of those change uh, with McCluskey and Hume obviously in the middle so more interesting then is the back three Jonathan we have that question I don't know I don't think we asked it earlier did we uh, so Robert W asked should the Stockdale experiment at 15 be over I think you've both mentioned this briefly earlier on is it time to put Jacob back on the wing I don't think it's time to sorry I don't think that it will be the end of the experiment mm-hmm. but I can absolutely see him starting on the wing um, in this game that's what I would do I would have Little Stockdale and Laurie like it's a huge game to put Laurie back into. I've not played an awful lot since the restart, but you know, he started the quarter final last year um, at fullback, had a good game. Obviously, Leinster would target him um, through, through box kicks. It would just be inevitable, but as we saw when he played against Leicester um, in the Champions Cup last year, you know, he's well able to uh, 
put himself about in that regard too. Um, and I did, like I just thought there was a nice balance there. I thought it gave them a bit more freedom, and it was playing with that freedom that really got them back into the game because they weren't getting any joy out of just running into the teeth of the Edinburgh defence. And it's going to be the same on Saturday because. I would assume for them that Will Connors is going to play again. I would assume that that's going to be the way that they go. And you saw the job that he was able to do. We talked about it last week um, on stopping the big ball carriers at source. Rob Little's try is the perfect example of the extra facets to McCloskey's game, the extra facets to Katsia's game. Um, and Ulster looked like a better team when they utilised those more than just, um, I suppose the hard-running aspects of the game, which was really just trying to out Edinburgh, Edinburgh, and there's no point in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they, they've got such pace out wide when uh, Stockdale and Littler there, and they would be well advised to use it, and very much that was what they were trying to do at that point of the game, when they moved Stockdale back, to use that width, to use that pace, and bring it, in, bring it to bear where there was space, and space being created with some excellent passing. You also, James Hume also threw a great pass, actually, in that move for Little's try just prior to that, um, to release uh, Kutsia. And, um, you know, they, they really profited from, from that, and, and that is an area where they would be, I, I think, would be very much looking at in a, in a way that they can go with Leinster, um, you know, and, and to have both those players in those positions who are finishers, both of them can finish, and both of them can actually, you know, they, they can do their bit of defence as well. Um, I think it's yeah. I, I think they've got to go with them. I mean, uh, they had Louis Ludic out there, and Louis didn't look very comfortable at that point of the game at all. And um, fairness to Van der Merwe, I think was on the opposite wing. Who would have looked comfortable? Um, Louis is another potential option of fullback, but I I, I think um, or or Ludic, I should say, I think um, yeah, Michael Lowry is the guy to start there because he will also help electrify that back three. Um, with his pace as well, his ability to attack of any ball that you know is, is sloppily delivered, mm-hmm. and boy, Edinburgh certainly did do that. But um, you know, I, I just think that that is something to do. And you're right, Larry will be targeted, but Larry has stood up to this sort of thing before. He's more than capable of doing it. And you know what? You know, quality players rise to quality occasions to the right occasions. This is the right occasion for mm-hmm. him. Um, I think Dan is not gambling if that's what he does. I think if Dan does that, he's setting out a clear intent of what he intends to do with Leinster, which is really go after them as much as he can. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in agreement with that then, Little and Stockdale in the wings, oh, and uh, Larry, Larry and Philbeck? Yeah. I think so. Jonathan Yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to see them do. I don't yeah. know whether they will, but... Yeah. Okay. So moving into the pack then, really the, the back line is going to be Ray Murphy, you could say no change? I think I think you have to be tempted to put Reedy in there. Um, if he's come through, obviously I've not played in six months or more than six months, if he's come through okay from that 20 minutes that he gave, I think he'd have to be an option. Okay. And then you're looking at whether you think you get more impact off your bench from Ray or Nick Timoney. He wasn't involved, but was um, was in Edinburgh anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Reedy's too valuable player not to start. Yeah. Yeah, if you can. And in locks, 
Treadwell do enough to push himself in there for you? No, I'd keep, I'd keep it the same just yeah. because I think I think Treadwell's definitely their best substitute lock if that makes sense. You yeah. know, we, we've almost talked about it before with um, Ian Henderson in Ireland of just how much he gives you in a short burst coming off the bench compared to starting and I, I think mm-hmm. he gives you much more than you'd get from Alan O'Connor or Sam Carter off the bench. Yeah. So I like I, I would see that staying the same. Okay. So the the interest uh, then or, or more interest on in the front row. Either side of Rob Herring, he obviously went with the two young guys, O'Toole and O'Sullivan, over the more experienced McGrath and, and Marty Moore. Michael, could you see him sticking with those young guys then? Um, that, yeah, that, that's the really tricky one. Um, I don't know. I, I just can't call what he's, what he's probably going to do with that. <clears throat> because ideally, the young guys thought would bring you more energy off the bench. As it turned out, that wasn't necessarily the case. Marty Murray and Jack McGrath would very much want to get at Leinster. Uh, they would have extra motivation to start. Um, no, I, I, honestly, I just don't know what he's going to do in that regard. I don't know if Johnny would have any thoughts on it myself. I have no idea. There are pros and cons for doing either one now. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it really depends on what sort of game he really wants to play. If he wants to play high pace, which we, we know he does, perhaps the youngsters are the idea and a short burst from the other two, mm-hmm. which worked against Edinburgh. I'm not so sure that's going to work against Leinster, but I think whichever way it goes will very much determine what sort of game plan he wants to implement, um, you know, at what tempo he wants to play. And we all know they want to play at a very high attacking tempo, uh, but I, I just don't know what he's going to do. I, I, I can't guess that. I can't mm-hmm. guess that. What about you, Johnny? Do you think? I think in terms of what Leinster are going to bring at the scrum, over the course of the 80 minutes. I think it's more heavily weighted to their strength being with the starters than necessarily Edinburgh. Where I thought Edinburgh's props, certainly at the scrum, you looked at their bench and you were like, you're going to need yeah. you need that covered off over 80 minutes. And I just wonder why, whether just how well Andrew Porter's playing would make you tempted to put Jack McGrath in there and just all his experience and even just the more intimate knowledge that he has of um, yeah. Andrew Porter. Now, I know that obviously Porter and O'Sullivan played Leinster on the 20s together, so they know each other too. But I just wonder if maybe Jack McGrath's scrummaging ability to try and negate the impact of Porter would tempt you into starting him mm-hmm. ahead of bringing O'Sullivan off the bench and then keeping it the same on the other side with O'Toole starting and Moore coming off the bench. Mm-hmm. Just well, wonder. Yeah, Keane Healy maybe against Marty Moore. They might favour Marty Moore going against Healy at the start. Possibly, uh, I don't know what he's going to do, but yeah. Yeah, it will be, will be very interesting to see on uh, on that one. So what about uh, Leinster's team news, John? Do we know much about who they will have available or otherwise? The interesting thing about Leinster, obviously, is the looming prospect of Saracens. Like, mm-hmm. We've seen Leinster, you know, we saw it last season in the Pro 14 that even in a final, they're not necessarily going to go full bore if they have to play in Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, Ross Byrne, as the example, came in for Sexton in the European quarterfinal against Ulster last year. 
and was brilliant, you know. So guys coming in with a point to prove are thoroughly dangerous when you're talking about Leinster players, but it's very hard to predict whether Leinster are going to look at this saying, right, we played Munster, now we're playing Ulster, then we to play Saracens. The week after that, especially depending on the Farrell news today, they'll be expecting to play a semi-final the week after that. Yeah. And they're not, I don't think those guys are going to play four weeks in a row. I know people have talked about it, but I just don't see it. So I think they're going to, I think, I think, to cut a long-winded point short after I've already spoken about it, <laughs> I think that we'll see one or two surprises in the Leinster team. And then you're also bearing in mind that they're expecting to have James Ryan back. Yeah. They say that they're monitoring Furlong and Dan Levy. Those guys haven't played since, um, <clears throat> basically since Twickenham. Um, in Furlong's case and in Levy's case since the quarterfinal. We were talking about 18 months ago. Well, yeah. So, you know, that's yeah. a huge gamble to throw either of those guys in. And then there's one other, sorry, Jordan Larmer, yeah, is going through the return to play protocol. So yeah. it just depends how that goes. In that, way, in that regard for him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this, this is the time they're going to do any mixing and matching. It's going to be for this game. Because mm-hmm. they thoroughly intend to continue on in Europe. So it makes abundant sense. It's very pragmatic for Leo Cullen to do that. If that's, and I think, yeah, I think he will. I mm-hmm. think he will see a few, uh, not eyebrow raising selections exactly, but different selections from what you might have expected mm-hmm. towards the final, simply because of what they got in front of them. They're not yeah. demeaning it, far from it. <laughs> they got so, the resources they have are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, even if they don't have one or two of the really big names, the people who are backing them up, and the people who are then backing them up, are still <laughs> high, high standard, top quality. Uh, operators. Yeah, so, they're, they're planning how to win two trophies rather than just one. Yeah, they are. He's got to, he's got to be planning that. It's a two-pronged, two-pronged thing for Leinster. And it's not that they're in any way diluting it, as they said. They would expect to win the Pro 14 for the third mm. year running, by the way, as well. Yeah. And then they would expect also to, to really have a, a real serious tilt at uh, lifting the European Cup as well. Mm-hmm. And are not going to be able to do that by playing your best team every week. Simply can't. <clears throat> yeah. So I think it's fair to say they expect to win both. Like yeah. you talk about yeah. expecting oh, yeah. the both. Like I think they expect. <laughs> they're not going to say it, but I think they would expect to win both. They'd certainly be favourites for both. Um, you know they've got Saracens, which could be one of the toughest tests they face this season, even without Farrell. And then where's their other challenge going to come from? Exeter, I suppose. But you know yeah. they've been Exeter last too. You know. Um, Whereas it's it's interesting because we haven't mentioned Toulouse yet. Ulster obviously have to play Toulouse as well mm-hmm. and have played more of a stronger team over the course of these three weeks than Leinster have. But to be honest, like I think if Ulster won, um, if Ulster were to win on Saturday, as much as people would still care about Toulouse, I don't think they would linger too long in the result of Ulster. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, no, that's absolutely spot on. So does that give Ulster a chance? Prediction time very quickly, we're almost out of time. But does this uh, 
attitude that both teams are going to have going in, does that give Ulster a chance of winning this? I think the phrase uh, Dan McCarnett used yesterday was a puncher's chance, and they do. Like you saw that in the quarterfinal last last year, they were probably more unfavour. The only difference being that it had more time to gear themselves up. Like the key is going to be um, how they start, starting well in the same way that they did in the quarterfinal, rather than what we've seen them before. I don't know whether it's a case of the atmosphere or the non-existent atmosphere or what it is, but like they're. They're obviously they've been slow out of the blocks in games as well as overall, um, so they can't afford that. Basically, if Ulster come out and play an eight out of ten, and Leinster play, or maybe even a nine out of ten, and Leinster play the sort of six out of ten, seven out of ten that they have been playing, there's a chance. But as we saw last week, unless you take your chances, Leinster do not have to play to their anywhere near their peak to beat you. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. Michael, give us a give us a prediction. You've always got a chance. You, you know that, that's the nature of sport. It's impossible to just simply glibly say, "Yeah, that's right. That's it." You've always got a chance because you're there, and strange things happen, and we've seen it, which is what we love about sport—the mm-hmm. you unpredictable know, nature yeah. of it. Uh, this unfortunately has that predictable. <laughs> There's no to completely contradict what I just said. There's, a, there's something very predictable looking about it. Um, I'm not sure that Ulster's performance against Edinburgh, is, you know, is they can take it another to another level. I'm not sure so in such close proximity to what happened in Murrayfield, despite their win. I think Leinster will win, um, but I, you know, I, I think Ulster can can certainly put it to them again, and will it perhaps worried them more than would have been the case. Uh, they probably also thought they'd be facing Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, no, it's hard to see anything other than Leinster win, isn't it? You were away last week, Gareth, but that's me and Michael's way both of um, yeah. crushing over the fact that we both confidently said <laughs> there was no way they were going to win last week, so we, we've um, added a few more disclaimers this week. <laughs> Unfortunately, Adam said Ulster would win. Oh, it's a good job he's not here this week, then, isn't yeah, look, that's that's great. That's us for this week, boys. So uh, we will be back next week to look ahead to a European quarterfinal and back at, who knows, Ulster's uh, Pro 14 title, perhaps. Um, fingers crossed. You never know. That match is, of course, kicking off at 7.35 on Saturday evening. It will be live on Premier Sport. And we will have our match blog and plenty of uh, preview between now and then and lots of match reaction afterwards and online and in both the Sunday Life and the Belfast Telegraph so until then from Jonathan Bradley from Michael Sadler thank you very much and myself Gareth Anna thanks for listening